If you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Remember, if you don't know where John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the Pew Bible there in front of you if you'd like, if you didn't have one or if you need to access it on your phone. We're going to be in the New Testament. It's okay to use the table of contents. You'll get into the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Go to the big number 12. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And then look for the little number 27. That's the verse that we're going to be in this morning. And as you're turning there, just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible of your own, there's some blue ESV paperbacks right here on the right-hand side as you go out the double doors. Please grab one of those, write your name in it, take it home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Whatever translation you have there in front of you is fine. I'd rather, read, I'd rather you read the one you have than worry about having the wrong one. And so we're looking at the Gospel of John this morning. Remember, the Old Testament says, Someone's coming, someone's coming, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel accounts that we're in this morning, say, Someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says that someone is coming again. Who is that someone? The promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who was proclaimed. We'll even see this morning that we'll see, he goes back to the Old Testament. Someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Someone's here right now. We're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus and being reminded that he has promised to come again in glory and return. And so that's how the Bible works very quickly. And as you're looking at John chapter 12, 27 to 43, we've been taking this gospel account since the beginning of the year, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and just moving through. And every single verse that we get further and further along, we get closer and closer to the cross. And as, a, as I've mentioned before, I only use Lord of the Rings references very sparingly. I try not to trot them out. But this, is, this morning, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about this passage, as we inch ever closer to the cross in John's gospel, it reminds me, it reminded me again of that little hobbit Frodo carrying that one ring into Mordor and ultimately into Mount Doom. If you've seen the, the movies, Lord of the Rings, you see that he has this, this burden, this ring that he wears around his neck, and he leaves the Shire and he's trying to get back and throw that ring back into uh, the fires of Mount Doom. And uh, along the way in the story, with every passing step, that ring that he carried around his neck became a heavier and heavier and heavier burden. And you see by the end of it, he is just mentally, emotionally, physically just worn out from carrying this burden. So much so that by the end of it, he's crawling on his hands and knees and his best friend Samwise Gamgee has to pick him up and actually carry him. You see, the burden of the ring that he's carrying, it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And we've all experienced moments like this in our lives before. Things that we're not looking forward to that make our stomachs churn, that make our palms clammy, that make our knees weak. We've all received news that caused us anguish and even made our bodies buckle. You ever receive such hard news that your body just kind of like collapses your, your knees kind of just break for a minute. We've all had moments like this. And as we read this passage and as we read other scripture passages, it's easy to kind of mentally sanitize what we're reading and remove the human element from it. Sometimes we're afraid of assigning too much humanity to Jesus out of fear of somehow downplaying his divinity. 
That if we give too much credence to his humanity that somehow we're robbing him of his divinity, that is absolutely a false dichotomy. As we think about this scripture this morning, the, the, the whole scripture in our confessional history teaches that Jesus was very God and he was very man joined together in one person. How that works, I don't know. But we affirm what the scripture teaches, that he was fully God and fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. That's how our confession describes the person of Christ. And we can affirm that Jesus is the one who holds all things together, fully God, Colossians 1. We fully affirm that. We say, yes, Jesus, you are that. But we can also affirm that he was the one who can sympathize with us in our weakness because he was born in the likeness of men, as Hebrews chapter 4 and Philippians 2 tells us as well. Both are essential. He's the one who holds all things together, and he's also the one that can sympathize with us in our weakness because he's our great high priest. And we're thankful for that. And as we read this text this morning, I want you to see if you can notice how Jesus' full humanity and his full divinity are on full display here. And I also want you to see if you can pick up on both the necessity of and the different responses to the cross and the burden that it brings as we march towards Calvary. So think about, see if you can pick up on the burden of the cross also see if you can pick up on how Jesus' full divinity and his full humanity are on full display here. Okay? So with that in our mind, think about Frodo carrying that little ring. It's heavy. Let's take that to the reading of our scripture this morning. John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. 
Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, O Lord, that you have seen fit to give us your scripture that we can know how life works best as we can know who you are and we can know what you call us to do. And so, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and take these words, apply them to our hearts this morning, convict us of our sin, help us to see the glory of Christ, help us to revel in the gospel this morning, we pray. And Lord, we even pray that by the Spirit, if there are any of those who do not know you this morning, that you would use even these words, O oh Lord, to draw them to yourself. And so, Father, we pray and ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we think about this text this morning, from the very first century, Christians began to do something that, that while once was clandestine, has become now so kind of ubiquitous that we hardly even notice it anymore. What is that thing? The wearing of a cross necklace. You think back for thousands of years, Christians have identified themselves and each other by wearing a symbol of Roman execution around their neck. It's a really strange kind of symbol to rally around if you think about it. I mean, you're, you, some of you may even have a cross necklace on this morning. And what you're doing is you are wearing around your neck a symbol of Roman execution. What a weird thing to rally around when you think about it. But the longer you follow Christ, the more you understand just how, how central this symbol is to a proper understanding of the ministry of Christ and how you relate to it. And that's what we're going to discuss this morning. Remember, as we're marching towards the cross, we're kind of focusing in on that. And so the three main points that we're going to look at this morning, if you're a note-taking type of person, number one, we're going to see the burden of the cross. Number two, we're going to see the blessing of the cross. And finally, number three, I'm usually a two-point guy, but this morning we're going for three. The third point is going to be the barriers to the cross. So the burden of the cross, the blessing of the cross, and then the barriers to the cross. So let's look at that first point, the burden of the cross. As we, as we think about this passage and what's going on, remember what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the paradox of following Christ. There's this paradox that exists that the way up is the way down. That the giving of your, the, by giving your life away in this world, it actually leads to eternal life and joy. It seems so countercultural when we think about all that we're hearing in the here and now, which is like, grab as much as you can for yourself, and you only live once, and go get yours. And what Jesus is asking us to do as his disciples is to lay down our lives as he did. That in the laying down of our life for the sake of others in this world, we actually inherit and receive eternal life and joy. That the way up is actually the way down in the here and now. And Jesus alluded to the manner of his own death. Look at verses 24 and 25 that we looked at last week. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus knew from the very beginning that the cross was coming. And we talked about this last week. He never turned back. He never flinched. The cross was always there. And by doing so, he taught us, as his disciples, how to live and to serve and to suffer well for the kingdom of God. Christ is going before us, showing us how life works best. And verse 27 gives us a glimpse into the burden of the cross that Jesus carried as his quote-unquote, as the hour approached. He said, look at what he says in verse 27 as our text this morning opens. He says, Now my soul 
is troubled. There's a form of the Greek word terasso that's used here. T-A-R-A-S-S-O is the Greek word terasso. And what that Greek word means has a couple of different meanings, but it means troubled as we see translated here. It also means in anguish, terrified, almost stirred up. Like you think about how you might go to like a puddle and the water might be clear and then you run a stick around it and all the mud starts flying up. He says, my, my soul is like that. It's in anguish. It's stirred up. It's troubled. It's, it's, it's terrified. That same Greek word, terasso, is used to describe what Herod felt when he heard about a rival king being born. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water and they thought it was a ghost, that same kind of word was used. And also to describe the water that was stirred up in the pool back in chapter 5. You remember this angel would come and the water was stirred up? That's some of, the, some of the ways this word was used there. Here's what Kent Hughes said in his really helpful commentary. He said, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled because in a few hours he would bear the world's sins and suffer separation from his father. That is what threw his soul into turmoil. The soul of the very God who holds this universe together was in turmoil because he would bear our sin. And listen to this. But the price of our peace was his troubled soul. The price of our peace was his troubled soul. Did you notice what Jesus did at the end of this verse in verse 27? Do you notice what he did? He says, my soul's troubled. And what's he do? He prays to his father. Notice how even when faced with the coming reality of the cross, Jesus accepted his role and reaffirmed his commitment to it. His role as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That all of this was part of the sovereign will of God, this eternal covenant of redemption that existed between the Father and the Son before all space and time from all eternity past. Jesus knew the cross was coming. It was all part of the plan. It was all part of the sovereign will of God. And he never flinched. And keep in mind, when you think about this too, as the cross approaches, keep in mind who he went to the cross for, really. His undeserving enemies. That's you and me. But they were chosen in love by God's electing grace from before the foundation of the world to be called, redeemed, and kept by grace until the very end. But think about who he's going to the cross for. A bunch of people that are perfect and have their life all put together? No. For his enemies. It's amazing when you think about it. Again, John chapter 10, 27 to 29. We talked about this many weeks ago. Talking about Jesus as our good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a promise for the people of God this morning. You were known before the foundation of the world. You were called at just the right time. And by faith and by grace, you are kept until the very end. What a promise when we think about this. If you are here and you know and follow Christ as your Savior by faith, I just want you to take a second and just dwell upon one penny worth of the purchase price of your redemption. Just a penny worth of the purchase price of what it took. And as you think about that, as we think about that, I want you to see 
a sturdy Savior with a shaking soul in the shadow of the cross for you. Full of love, full of compassion for His sheep, with all the power to actually accomplish their redemption. I will do whatever it takes to redeem and reclaim and rescue and bring home all of these sheep that the Father has given to me. I know every one of them. I know them all by name. And I will do whatever it takes to bring them all the way home. Ladies and gentlemen, that is us. We are the wayward sheep. We are the rebellious ones. And yet see Jesus here quaking with his soul stirred up as he knows the hour of his death is coming. See the humanity of Jesus here for you, for you, and for me. I want you, as we think about just dwelling upon a penny worth of the purchase price of our own salvation, and we see Jesus shaking, I want to, I want to ask you the question, where were you when all of this happened? What claim did you have to any of this while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us? May God forgive us for any glory we have sought to keep for ourselves when we see our Savior quaking before the reality of His death and wrath-bearing for our sin debt. May we say, Lord, I don't want to be a glory thief. You deserve all of it. Lord, forgive me. May we repent of trying to keep some back for ourselves. Where were we? The best thing that has ever happened to you already happened to you at the cross, if you trust Christ by faith. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. We don't get to come in beating our chests and saying, look at how amazing we are, and we did all of this. We didn't do any of this. And yet, see the grace of God laid before you. See the mercy of Christ. See His compassionate heart towards sinful people like you and me laid out in front of you. And just say, thank you, Jesus. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. It's the gospel. Is this thing on? I mean, just sit and dwell on that this morning. It's amazing when you think about it. It's just absolutely amazing. It's the reason why we get up in the morning. Our prayer should be what Jesus prayed in verse 28. Did you see what his prayer was? Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. How was this prayer answered? Did you pick up on this? How this prayer of Jesus was answered? With one of the three places that we're told that the Father spoke from heaven. The first one was Jesus' baptism. We'll see at Jesus' transfiguration later on. And the third one's right here. Where Jesus prays to his Father and says, glorify your name. Look at what he says. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus begins, Father, glorify your name. And John writes, then a voice came from heaven. says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. You see, what it, what's going on here is the Father is placing His seal of approval on the saving work of His Son. That saving work past, present, and future. And this reminds us all that all of this was under the sovereign authority of the triune Godhead so that the glory of the Lord would be revealed. Jesus says, Father, glorify Your name. 
And the Father says, I have already glorified it by sending you, O my Son, and I will glorify it again. And He will continue to glorify it. There is no point, there is no place in heaven and on earth where the glory of the Lord will not be seen. He's at work. That's the bur- but see the burden of the cross. See, this, see Jesus quaking, His soul troubled, knowing that the hour is coming. Feel the burden of the cross. But now let's look at our second point, the blessings of the cross. Look at verse 30. Notice whom the voice was sent to comfort. Did you pick up on that? Look at verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. That voice was sent to comfort who? His disciples. And we continue to be comforted by the word of God. Heard when it is faithfully preached and read out loud. Because our Father is not silent. And I love hearing, if you want to hear the voice of God, we think, how do we, you know, how's this work? So if you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God audibly, read your Bible out loud. The Word of God given to us. We're all looking for this like secret knowledge that somehow we have this like secret word that comes to us. If you want to hear the Lord speak to you, go to where He's promised to speak to you, and that's His Word. And if you want to read, you want to hear the audible voice of God, do something that will probably bless your soul. Read it out loud. Our Father is not silent, and I am thankful for that. And look at verse 31. After this voice is heard, notice the different reactions. And then look at what happens, that Jesus puts Satan on notice. Look at what he says in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. By his death, Jesus will break the power of sin's reign over God's covenant people and the power of Satan. And how will he do this? How will he break that reign? Verse 32. By being lifted up and dying. Verse 33 confirms this, that this is what's going to happen. And Jesus alluded to this all the way back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which comes right before John 3, 16. For you to understand John 3, 16, you've got to go back and understand 14 and 15 that come right before it. And he said, as, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What we're looking at here is Numbers 21, where God sent poisonous snakes into the Israelites' camp as punishment for their sin. Why did he do it? I have no idea. But aren't you glad that he doesn't send poisonous snakes into your house when you sin against him? I'm glad he doesn't. There'd be a lot of snakes in the house. But you think about what he's doing here, that God sends poisonous snakes into the Israelites' camp as punishment for their sin. And then what you see is Moses going and interceding on their behalf and God providing a way by faith for people to be saved. And what was that way? Look and live. Look by faith and live. I know it doesn't make sense. Look to the snake. Look to the bronze serpent and live. Look and live. This brass serpent was lifted up on a pole and those who looked to it in faith were saved. And here's what Kent Hughes is saying. Here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, Our Lord was saying, If I'm lifted up on the cross like that writhing serpent as a sin bearer, the sin bearer, I will draw all who believe in me to myself. What draws people to Jesus is his being lifted up as our atonement. He is the one who took upon himself our sins. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 23. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And notice whom Jesus will draw to himself. People from all nations, tribes, and tongues. This was the plan of redemption from the very beginning. Jesus said, I'll draw all people unto myself. That doesn't mean a universal salvation. Because Jesus himself talked about heaven and hell and wheat and the tares and those who are in and those who are out. We're not talking about a universalism. What we're talking about here is a heaven that's going to be way more gloriously diverse than you could ever imagine. From all nations, tribes, and tongues. Because guess who gets included in this covenant promise? Us, the Gentiles. That's us. Aren't you thankful? I am. I'm not an ethnic Jew. I don't think any of you are. We are included in that covenant promise. It says, I'm going to lift, I will be lifted up. And when I am, I will draw all people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to myself. It's amazing when you think about it. It's it's magnetic. The cross and Jesus' substitutionary atonement are foolishness to those without eyes to see. They're like, "Your, your Savior got nailed to a cross? I mean, how is that victorious? That's so silly. Your leader died. But for those who were made to hear His voice, they're like magnets. We're drawn to Him. Your substitutionary atonement, your work on the cross, like my heart's like just drawn to it. Kent Hughes said, although men may come for a time to a purely social gospel, they will not remain. Liberalism does not draw. Moral moral rearmament does not draw. That's like just bare moralism, like go be a good little boy and girl. He says, that's not going to do anything for you. He says, we may proclaim the Lord as a great ethical teacher, but ethics alone will generate no more power than to do the Ten, Com- than do the Ten Commandments painted on the cold surface of the walls of a church. We may proclaim Jesus as a young reformer, but he will not be able to lift man from his sins if that is all he is. Jesus the radical may draw cheers, but the uplifted Christ draws followers for eternity. We preach Christ crucified. I'll do it till I die. I don't preach Jesus as a great teacher, as a great moral leader, and just that. No, we preach Christ crucified on the cross. And that we need it. That's why we need a Savior. His substitutionary atonement. The heart of the gospel. The great blessing of the cross is that Christ offered Himself. The great hope of the cross is that by faith we're still able to look and live. The question is, is that your hope? Is that your hope today? Are you looking to this Christ by faith? Look and live. I, as a minister of the gospel, if you are here and you do not trust Christ, I call you to repent of your sin and to look to Jesus and live. Your self-salvation project is not going to work. And you need the work of the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to crack that stony heart up, and to give you a new heart of flesh. Quit playing games with the Savior. Look and live. Bow the knee to the King. He will be glorified. Repent. Look and live. He's that good. Yes, you're really that sinful. Me too. And He really is that gracious. That's why the gospel makes no sense. But yet it's true. And I call you to look and live. Believe in the gospel. Don't play patty cake with the church. Just because your rear end is here in the church does not make you a Christian. Do you know the Savior? Do you trust Him by faith? 
Does your world revolve around Jesus, the crucified one? He has a claim to your life. You don't have a claim to him. The great blessing of that cross is you see Jesus offering himself. And you ask the question, do you want to be free from the crushing burden of your own sin? Look to Jesus who bore that burden on the cross for you. Quit trying to carry it on your own. Look to Jesus and live. Look at verse 34. You see the crowd, probably a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles based on previous context. That's why we read verses in context. They responded with theological confusion. They say, well, we've heard that this Christ, this Messiah can't die. What's the deal with that? You're talking about going and dying. And they reference, quote-unquote, the law, which is the whole Old Testament scripture at the time. And this crowd obviously misses the references to Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, Psalm 22, that spoke about a suffering and dying Messiah, and also the references to the Ancient of Days in Daniel. We talked about that a little bit last week. Jesus warned them about his upcoming departure from their presence, and he calls them to himself the light of the world. Look at verse 34, 35, and 36. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? It seems so theological, right? Look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light's among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. Remember John chapter 1, way back when in January when we started? John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about that passage in Isaiah that we love to go through. The people were stumbling around, walking in on darkness, and on them a light has shone. Notice the flow from a holy God to sinful people. The light pierces the darkness. I am coming to you. The gospel call continues to go out as it has since the days of the prophets. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And we hear the blessings of the cross go out, but yet there's still barriers, are they not? That's our third point. Let's look at that quickly. We see the burden of the cross that Jesus is carrying. We see the blessings of the cross. Now we see the barriers to the cross. You want to know where we come in? Right here. Notice the mix of responses to the words of Jesus. These reveal the barriers to the cross. Look at verse 37. Despite the countless public miracles in the past, this voice from heaven, the people still do not believe. You're like, what more do you need? Don't forget like the raising of Lazarus. I mean, think about all these miracles that Jesus has performed, and yet still, the dots aren't getting connected. Here's what Sproul said. He said, all the signs that Jesus gave were not, were not enough to persuade people of the truth of Christ because what was required for faith then is the same thing that is required for faith now, namely the ministry of the Holy Spirit who accompanies the Word of God to remove the scales from our eyes and unstop our ears that we might believe. Look at verses 38 through 40, where John references the prophet Isaiah twice, again showing continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We today need to remember that the Bible comes as a package deal. The Old Testament and the New Testament, they come together. And as Jesus is pointing back to the Old Testament, he in and of himself is showing continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And so look at what we see here. This rejection of Jesus happened in the sovereignty of God so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Even this was foretold hundreds of years before. Verse 38, the first reference is from Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant passage. And we see in verse 39 that there are those who were incapable of believing because they are under a judicial verdict against them because of their sin. The second reference that we see is from Isaiah 6. This is a vision of the throne room of God. So you have the suffering servant, humanity, and you also have divinity together. The throne room of God. And look at verse 40. This is being passed over language. Basically what we're seeing here is God giving sinners what they truly want, which is their sin. And to remain in rebellion against a holy God. And you think about all of this, and you think, but for the grace and mercy of Christ, this is where we believers would be, still dead in our sin and under the wrath of God, and happily whistling our way all to hell. But for the grace of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, which is citing the Psalms. Again, connection. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is where we all should have been left by God, the one whom we offended, rebelled against, mocked openly, and shook our proverbial fist at. We should be dead in our trespasses and sins, but yet... Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not a pretty picture of a sinful humanity, is it? Oh, but that's not where the passage stops, is it? But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws. Remember that word means drag, drags him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now, I get it. There are many to people today who still refuse to believe what is plainly taught in the Scriptures from cover to cover because you, quote-unquote, just can't believe that God would do that. Even though it's as plain as day. What are we talking about? God's electing love. His electing love. Without any reference to the choices of the spiritually dead person whose entire being and will was hostile towards God, towards the God who created him. It's there. Throughout the scripture, God's electing love on full display. And here's the thing. The gospel will never be good news to you until you realize that without that electing love, the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit and the good, loving, gracious, patient heart of God the Father towards sinners like you and me, we would all still be lost without hope and under the wrath of God. That's why the cross mattered. That's why we need a Savior. That's why but not for the grace of God and this effectual calling, this electing love. If that's not true, we have no hope because we would never say, oh, please, God, how can I surrender all of my autonomy when the sin that I love and I can work this new heart in and of myself, I just got to work really hard. Forget about it. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Show me that passage. It's not in there. 
We say, Lord, all that you have done is by grace. And I stand at the shadow of the cross and go, why me? Why me? The true barrier to the cross is our own sin and wickedness. But thanks be to God that he dealt with that too by sending his son to hang as the cursed one in our place so that we could be redeemed. We had nothing to do with it. All of it was by grace. Even the faith and repentance necessary to respond was a gift by a loving and gracious God. Even that was a gift. And you say, and what we say is we don't say, well, that's not fair. We say, why me, O oh Lord? That's the right question. Why? Why, O oh Lord, would you ever? We just sang it. I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus of Nazarene and wonder how he could ever love me, a sinner, uncle- a sinner condemned and unclean. That's the real question. Why me, O oh Lord? Finally and sadly, we see another barrier to the cross in verse 43. Look at that. Did you pick up on this when we read it? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ooh, talk about a, like a knife to the heart. Speaking of this verse, English Puritan Matthew Henry said, See the power of the world and the smothering of convictions. Instead of openly acknowledging Christ, those in the crowd chose not to confess him out of fear of a loss of social standing. That means being put out of the synagogue. Here's what Ketty said. Your faith is a great theory until it costs you something. Your your faith is a great theory until it costs you something. Which of the two drives the way you live your life? The praise of other people or the glory of God? We're landing the plane. The wheels are out. Which of the one drives your life? Is it the praise of man or is it the glory of God? Your faith is just a theory until it's going to cost you something. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no better illustration that I can close with other than that one where we see our Savior carrying the heavy burden of the cross all the way to Calvary so that we could be set free from the burden and tyranny of our sin and all of that glory, every single drop of it belongs to Jesus. Every bit of it. And we say, thank you Jesus, why me? You're so good. The gospel's really that true. It's really that good. I hope you're thankful for it. Do you trust Christ this morning by faith in this way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Lord, as we're about to sing, our hope is built on nothing less than your blood, O Jesus, and your righteousness. We don't lean on anything that we bring to the table. We don't lean on any decision that we've made. We don't don't bring any righteousness of our own to the table. We stand upon Christ Christ, you are our solid rock. Everything else we look to in this life is like sinking sand. And Father, we pray that we would lean into your covenant promises. We're thankful that you, quaking and shaking as you were, with the cross approaching, that you never flinched. You went all the way. And Lord, help us just to stand amazed at that, O Lord, the work of your Spirit. Lord, help us to dwell upon, even just for a moment, just a penny's worth of the purchase price of our redemption. Help us to dwell upon that it took nothing less than the death 
of your perfect Son, O Father, in our behalf that we could be redeemed from a well-deserved hell. Nothing else would do. And so, Father, in a moment, help us to sing our guts out as we remember and proclaim that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.